I'll put a table on the screen here for you to think about. This is what we've been looking at in the week of creation. So notice on days 1, 2, and 3, we see God forming, and then there's the connection going over to days 4, 5, and 6, where God then fills his creation, and it corresponds to what he's done on the on that the, the same line there. So, like, for example, day 1, God made light. Uh, day 1, we saw at the day of dawn 1, we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then God makes light, and so... Day four corresponds with that. God makes all the luminaries, things like the sun, the moon, the stars, and so forth. Day two, God made the atmosphere around the earth. It was all prepared for the for the life to come. And day five, God made birds and the sea creatures. Today we'll look at day three and day six. We see on day three, God made dry land and the plants to go on the land. Again, preparing it for life. And then what life was to come? Well, God made land animals, and the height of His creation was mankind. So as day three dawns, the earth is is in what form? What do we see the earth in? It is still uninhabited. In fact, it's uninhabitable still. It's not in its final form yet. The entire surface is still filled with water, covered with water. And so we come to day three, and we want to see how God forms his creation here. We're starting, let's read, let's start reading in verse nine. Genesis one, verse nine. These are the words of the living God. He says, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. So what's God doing? We see, first of all, here in this in this section on day three, God created dry land and vegetation here on day three. Yes, it is a literal 24-hour day. We see that God keeps giving us this idea, that this truth, it's a 24-hour day, when he keeps saying it was evening and morning. In this case, he says the third day. So what's he doing? We see that God exerts his authority over the water and the land. How does he do that? In verse 9 and 10, we see him calling them forth, right? He's gathering, he's appointing them, their very functions. So God's gathering and appointment of the waters here show that they too are under his dominion. There is no God of the water or, you know, Poseidon or whatever you want to come up with. God himself is the the one who is in charge here. The seas are not independent forces to be feared. Uh, They are not to be worshipped. In fact, they are just creations. And the creations that respond to the direct commands of God here, they are doing his bidding here, aren't, aren't they? And so God exerted his authority as well as he names things. He has this ability and this authority to name them. Notice he 
names the dry ground land and the waters he called seas. And so that's showing his authority. He's the one who made them. He's the one who's in charge. He has that. And, and he assigns them their place and function in this world. We also see God commanded the land to produce vegetation in verse 11. A little different from the previous verses we looked at here. So for the first time, God's creative decree is indirect as opposed to direct. Before, God just speaks and light comes forth. God speaks and things happen. But here the land is commanded to produce the vegetation. Well, that brings an idea that some people have. They, you've probably heard people talk about Mother Earth. Mother Earth. Well, you will get no hint of this very pagan notion of Mother Earth here in the Scriptures. It's not there. The land by itself does not produce the vegetation. It doesn't do it on its own. But what we do see here is that God enables the land to do it by His creative Word. So he, in other words, he gives the authority and the ability to the land to bring forth vegetation. It's interesting, verse 12, we see that God made two kinds of vegetation. And they're expressed in general categories there in verse 12. We see, first of all, there's plants producing seed. It might be things like flowers, for example, often have, there's a lot of, different kinds of plants that have their seed, and God enables them to reproduce in that way. But there's also, notice there's fruit trees. Fruit, tree, fruit trees possess seeds as well. And so God says, this is how they are going to reproduce after their own kind. But also in verse 12, God prescribed boundaries for his vegetation. They reproduce according to their various kinds. And so creation as well as procreation is according to, notice it says it like ten times here in chapter 1, after their own kind. And that's indicating here that God has established parameters for his creation. You'll never see a tree giving birth to a human being or, or any other weird stuff going on, right? The flower is going to produce after its kind. The tree will produce after its kind. Well, one of God's favorite plants must be grass, because it's everywhere, and he talks so much about it in the Bible. I've given you a few pictures here of grass. You know what grass is, right? It's amazing. Just common grass, how amazing it is. I've learned a lot about it recently. It uh, offers countless benefits for us. Every year, for example, an average size lawn produces enough oxygen for four people. So you can thank God for your grass. Because <laughs> otherwise, you'd, you know, if we had no grass, we'd probably all die, wouldn't we? But grass also serves as a natural filter, purging the air from carbon monoxide, or sorry, dioxide, sorry. So, you know, stuff coming out the tailpipe of your car, or, you know, when you breathe, there's not oxygen coming out of your mouth. Thank God it's, it's, it's dealing with the dust and the dirt and other pollutants. It's reducing soil erosion. It's even cooling the air. Perhaps the most commercially valuable grasses are found among the flowering plant order, such as things like millet, corn or maize, wheat, and rice. You'll see a picture of some corn here on the screen. 
Uh, from corn, we receive food for our families, uh, feed for our livestock, raw materials for other industries. For example, stalks can be made into paper and wallboard. Husk can be used as filling material. Cobs can be used to make charcoal and industrial solvents. Ninety percent of all harvested wheat is used to make foodstuffs. Uh, of course, we get breads, pastas, cakes, crackers, cookies, pastries, flowers, flour, all kinds of various flour. But while the remaining ten percent is uh, used to make industry byproducts such as starch, paste, malt, dextrose, gluten, and alcohol. Very versatile. Then the other one is rice. Rice farming serves a multitude of purposes, even before you can harvest the rice. Flooded rice fields function as holding ponds where harmful chemicals can can break down through ventilation and exposure to the sun. These purified waters return to rivers and streams, increasing the survival rates of fish stock. Migrating waterfall visit rice fields in search of food. It's a comfort to, to, to know. It's a comfort to me as I'm thinking about all the grasses that God has made. He's put that there for good reason. It's a comfort to know that God made the grass. He gave us the vegetation. The Bible says that God makes... The desolate wasteland sprout with grass, Job 38 says. He, he also makes it wither with a single breath, Isaiah 40 says. Psalm 104, verse 14 on the screen says that God causes the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. So who does all of this? Who does the work? Why does the grass exist? Why is it there doing its work? Because God causes it to grow. So here we have at the end of day three, the earth has suddenly become drastically different from day the end of day two, right? The earth has become this garden paradise. It's decorated with lots of plants, including things like beautiful flowers and trees. And all of that is set in the midst of a spectacular blue ocean. All within 24 hours, that's happened. And so no wonder God looks at his creation here at the end of day three and says, that is good. It was the perfect environment for life. And so I want us to see now how God fills the earth with living creatures here on day six. Look at verse 24. We're not going to read all about day six. Next week, we'll look at the the creation of man and all that that implies. But look at verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. So here on day six, God created life for the land. So he made the dry land on day three. Now we see God filling his land with living creatures. First thing God does is he spoke the land creatures into existence on verse 24 there. The means of creation, by the way, is the same as it has been in the other days of creation. 
You notice in verse 24, you'll see the words, God said. Uh, Verse 25, it said, God made. Same thing. It's a Hebrew parallelism. In other words, a Hebrew parallelism is just that they're equivalent expressions, just different ways of saying the same thing. And notice that God's creative work here was not millions or billions of years. It was instant. He gives the command for things to appear, and what happens? They're instantly there. He commanded What he commanded was instantly made, and notice it's made complete. It's not in a process of, of getting to completion. It is there and complete, doing exactly what God wants to do. It is fixed, and it's in its place. Essentially, it has God made it. And it's been that way, essentially, ever since. But what land creatures did God make? Well, here's uh, listen to what Henry Morris said in his commentary. Quote, This classification has no correlation. He's talking about the kinds, God making them after their kinds. He says, This classification has no correlation with the arbitrary system of man-made taxonomy. Amphibians, reptiles, mammals, insects. But as a more natural system based on the relation of the animals to man's interests, all three categories of land animals were made simultaneously, as is evident from the inverted order of listing in verses 24 and 25. Once again, it is obvious that there is not the slightest correlation with the imaginary evolutionary order. That is, insects, then amphibians, then reptiles, then all mammals. As a matter of fact, evolution places insects, amphibians, and land reptiles all before the birds that Genesis says were made the day before. End quote. God speaks all these land creatures into existence. But notice what he what is he making here? What different categories is Henry Morris talking about? Well, the first one is there in verse 24. We see that God made livestock. God made livestock. Livestock here refers to, as far as I can tell, refers to animals that can be domesticated. So we as man, we have dominion over the animals, rule over them. So things like we we can domesticate sheep, goats, cows, those sorts of animals. And they are, all those livestock that we have are remarkable creatures. Let me tell you one that you probably know the most about, but a very common one. Uh, I'm continually amazed as I study God's creation. By the way, if you want to learn more about God's creation, I recommend you can go to creation.com or go to Answers in Genesis. I have been learning heaps from those two very good websites. You just type in, type in a word or topic or something, and you can get all kinds of good articles to read and whatever you want to read about. But let's talk about the one of the remarkable creatures that God has made called the cow. It's amazing how God designed their digestive system. And you probably know, some of you may even know, that ag research centers have, have even put windows on cows so they can look at what's going on in the digestive system. It's amazing. Cows have four stomachs. Uh, it's a little hard to see from way back where you are, but there's arrows going from the cow's mouth into the first stomach and going back and going into the second and so forth. That's what those arrows are representing, the process of the food going through the digestive system. Uh, some have said, well, actually, 
maybe saying they have four stomachs is not the most accurate way of saying it. Some have said it's a very complex organ that's divided into four chambers. And so when a cow eats grass or hay, the partially chewed fiber passes into the cow's first stomach chamber. And there it ferments for one to two days. How does it do that? Well, uh, the bacteria cause the fermentation to happen, beginning the process of breaking down all that cellulose and converting it into simple sugars. Then the first chamber of the cow's stomach, uh, if you see in that picture there, you'll notice it's bigger than the others. It's actually capable of holding up to 200 liters. Imagine dragging that around with you. But anyway, when when a cow drinks water, which uh, according to my reading is they can drink uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know between 100, some even drink up to 200 liters per day. But most of that fluid bypasses that first chamber and, and flows directly into the second chamber, where it gets mixed in with the digestive enzymes and more fermentation bacteria. Meanwhile, the the muscles in the in the chambers there roll that all that fodder in chamber one into little balls and pass them into the second chamber. And later, when the cow manages to find some leisure time from all of its work it's doing for us, it will regurgitate those soggy balls of fiber from that second chamber. And then they chew on them, uh, make them a little more finely uh, chewed up, but then they swallow it again. Did you know that cows actually work about 14 hours a day? say, well, what are they doing? Oh, yeah. Typical cow spends about six hours per day eating and about eight hours per day chewing its cud. Very busy. I know, you look at them out there on the hillside and you say, oh man, that's real nice. What an easy job you guys got. They're doing a lot of work. So after some more chewing, that cud then becomes a near liquid state and is passed into the second chamber. Smaller particles are able to pass into the third chamber. The larger particles are regurgitated again for some more chewing. But in that third chamber, excess liquid is reabsorbed into the cow's system. And the cut is compacted and is broken down by the digestive process. The refined food is then passed into the third ch- from the third chamber into the fourth chamber. And this chamber works like uh, the stomach of other mammals. It... Uh, secrete strong acid and digestive enzymes, completing the digestive process. From there, nutrients pass into the cow's blood system, sustaining the cow and providing the, all the, the, the vital nutrients for milk production. You say, well, how does all this happen? Well, certainly not by evolution. It's not by random chance all that happens. It's a remarkable design that enables the cow to enjoy a nutritious meal from just simple grass. Grass isn't so simple when you understand the one who made it, but anyway, the cow is able to do something that is impossible for most mammals. It's a wonderful, efficient design, converting all that cellulose, into, which is something that we are not able to digest, but yet enables it to produce things like milk, cream, butter, and cheese. God's also made cows very useful. Almost every part of a cow can be used for food. 
I don't know what your personal favorite is, but I love a nice juicy steak. Hard to beat something like that. Very, very useful. But even uh, what some people might consider rubbish parts of the cow are also useful. The leather can be, sorry, the hides can be turned into leather. Even blood and bones can make fertilizer. Cows seem to have been made especially designed by God to be useful to mankind, to serve the needs of humanity, do a good job. They can be fully domesticated so they don't kill us. Praise God for that, right? Most of the time they're not killing us, but they're they're easily bred. They can live almost anywhere from cold climates or like where I grew up. They're able to survive harsh winters, but yet they can grow up in hot places as well. And so God has given them as a wonderful gift to humanity. So when you see that word livestock there in your Bible, it's referring to domesticated animals like sheep, goats, and cows. But the second category that God made here is verse 24. He says, God made creeping things. Creeping things refer to animals that crawl or creep close to the ground. So they would include the insects, the smaller reptiles, lizards, so forth, amphibians like salamanders or whatever, and other small mammals. Let me just tell you about one, because the Bible, God in the Bible actually tells us to look to the ants. Here's what he says in Psalm, or Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. You ever done what God just told us to do there? Go to the ant. Look at the ants. Study it. I've done a little study on some ants. You probably know they're really hard workers. They're also incredibly strong. Imagine lifting 50 times your own body weight. An ant can lift 50 times its own body weight. So let's just say, for example, a nice easy figure. Let's say you weighed 100 kilos. Imagine lifting 5,000 kilos. That's what an ant can do. A colony of ants can work together, as Proverbs chapter 6 says, it can work together without a supervisor. There's a lot of human beings that can't even do that, right? They're useless without someone supervising them. But they have a very short lifetime, and through their short lifetime, they're virtually involved in nonstop work. You say, what are they doing? Well, they're building nests. They're foraging for food. They're blazing trails. They're carrying food back to the queen of the colony. An ant's life is basically work. I found that ants are amazingly resilient. So when God says, go to the ant, look at the ant, study it, think of its resilience. They can survive underwater. They can survive even being frozen. They can withstand high temperatures. They're very adaptable. There's a wide variety of ant species. About 10,000 different species of ants have been cataloged, and they keep finding more. So there's a lot of ants in our world. In fact, experts believe that if you took all the ants in the world and weighed them, all the world's ants combined would outweigh all the human beings in this world. Hard to imagine, I know. 
But ants live in colonies. You'll see a picture of one here. But there's a hierarchy in every ant colony. Of course, at the heart of the colony is the queen. She can lay somewhere between two or 3,000 eggs per day. And after a colony is established, the queen lays special eggs that they're able to develop into males as well as young queens. Once they develop into adults, they fly off together and they go plant another colony of ants. So if you feel like you're always killing ants, that's, that's why. They're amazing. Once they, they do that, um, it's hard to stop them, isn't it? But anyway, God's created ants for many purposes. So when you kill them, remember God has created them and they do have a purpose. They are very beneficial to our earth. Ants serve a vital function in the maintenance of our soil, aerating and fertilizing the soil, pollinating plants, and performing other ecological house-cleaning services. They're very, very busy. And so they're vital to Earth's well-being. In fact, uh, many people believe, who know about ants and what they do, that if all the ants on Earth died, the, the effect would be catastrophic. All Earth's land-based ecosystems would collapse without ants. So you can praise God for ants. That's just one of those many little creeping things that he makes here on day six. But the third category God makes in verse 24 is that God made the beast of the earth. Beast here refers to large wild animals. Uh, They are large mammals, things like lions and elephants. They are also large reptiles. You might call them dinosaurs. Uh, Some people have called them that. But some people look at the Bible and say, oh, wait a minute now. The Bible doesn't actually mention dinosaurs. I don't see the word dinosaur in the Bible. That's true. You're probably not going to find that word in, in a Bible. Part of that is because the word dinosaur is a relatively new word. It wasn't coined until 1841. But you've probably heard the word dragon, which is basically a dinosaur. Some people look at the Scripture and say, well, okay, if God made dinosaurs here on day six, then what happened to the dinosaur? Most people think dinosaurs and evolution go together. They think it's proof for all these millions and millions of years. Well, dinosaurs are used, you go to a museum, you read books, they're they're used to convince children that there have been millions of years of earth history. Sadly, many Christians don't know that the Bible can actually be used to explain dinosaurs. Many people think that the death of the dinosaurs is shrouded in such mystery that, hey, we're never going to know the truth about where did they come from? When did they live and what happened to them? In fact, I was looking at studying those websites. I found that uh, there's scientists can't agree all kinds of various ideas of how the dinosaurs died. Well, dinosaurs are only a mystery if you accept evolution. But if you come to your Bible and you actually believe what it says, it's no longer a mystery. There's no mystery if you're accepting God's account that you find right here in the Bible. See, according to biblical history, dinosaurs first existed around 6,000 years ago. And because they were land animals, and God made all the land animals, 
on day six of creation week, guess what? Dinosaurs were created on day six, right? That's pretty logical. Well, here's what Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis Ministry had to say about dinosaurs. Quote, dinosaurs could not have died out before this time because death, bloodshed, disease, and suffering are a result of Adam's sin. Adam and Eve were also made on day six along with the dinosaurs. So dinosaurs live with people. Representatives of all the kinds of land animals, including the dinosaur kinds, went on board Noah's ark. All those that were left behind drowned in the worldwide flood. Many of their remains became fossils. After the flood, which was about 4,500 years ago, the land animals came off the ark and lived in the present world beside people. Because of sin, the judgment of the curse and the effects of the flood have greatly changed the earth. Since the flood, many animals have died out from diseases, a lack of food, etc. The dinosaurs, like many other creatures, seem to have also died out. End quote. So, there you go. You look at the creation account here in the book of Genesis. You have all the answers you need to know. Let me ask you this. Is there any evidence of dinosaurs living after the flood? Any evidence? Dinosaurs living after the flood? After all the animals come off Noah's Ark? Well, not long after the flood, there's a guy in your Bible by the name of Job, and God has a conversation with Job, which might be the oldest book in your Bible. And God has this conversation with Job, and he tells him about the largest land animal that he made. And from the conversation, you get the idea that Job's actually seen this land creature. Job seems to know what God is talking about, and God says, look at this, look at this creature that I've made, Job. Why is God doing that? Well, God is showing Job how great he was as creator of these creatures. So the book of Job seems to describe a sauropod dinosaur, uh, what, what you might call a long-necked dinosaur. And the Bible here in Job chapter 40 calls this creature behemoth, which, by the way, behemoth is just a transliteration of the Hebrew. You say, well, what is behemoth? Well, it could have been a brachiosaurus. And based on the fossil records, that we've found scientists have estimated that a brachiosaurus was a huge creature about 22 meters in length, which, by the way, is longer than this entire building. Uh, the, the building is about 20 meters long. Uh, he was about 12 meters in height, so taller than this building, and he weighed in at 90 tons. And scientists have now are saying that the brachiosaurus may have been dwarfed by two bigger sauropods, appropriately, appropriately named Supersaurus and Ultrasaurus. Supersaurus and Ultrasaurus exceeded the 30-meter length. Huge, huge animals. Look what God says about Behemoth in Job chapter 40. Remember, God is trying to get you to be amazed 
at him. He is the one who made behemoth. All right, so as you read this, bear that in mind. Job 40, verse 15. God says here, he says, Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thigh are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. In other words, he's the biggest. Let him who made him bring near his sword, for the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes, or pierce his nose with a snare? What's the answer? <laughs> like, no way. That dude's so tall I can't even get up there anyway, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to pierce his nose even if I could get that close, right? God's saying, Job, I'm amazing. I made it all, including the largest land animal there's ever been. I made it. But look how God made the animals to reproduce. We see in verse 25, he made the animals to reproduce after their kind. They reproduce after their kind. In other words, one kind of animal cannot evolve into a different kind. Why? Because God made each category of animal after its kind. So guess what, my friends? This rules out macroevolution. I do believe in micro changes, but I don't believe in macroevolution. You say, well, what kind of microevolution? I'll explain that in a moment. But basically, I'm talking about things like hybrids, for example. And you say, well, what about what, what are hybrids? What about them? Well, hybrids are basically uh, crossbred animals. Mixed up animals. What do they tell us? Well, they seem to defy the man-made classification systems, and that's why the word species is not helpful here when you try to talk about kinds. You say, what about those created kinds in Genesis? Um, does that does hybrids somehow disprove that? No. Uh, we have lots of hybrids today, and it just shows that they're actually the same kind of animal. I found some interesting ones on uh, creation.com and Answers in Genesis. Have you heard of the pizzly? That's a pizzly right there, by the way. Pizzly is a uh, polar bear-grizzly bear hybrid cross. You might see some similarities. It doesn't look exactly like a polar bear. It doesn't look exactly like a grizzly bear, does it? So guess what? Bears then are the same kind. It doesn't prove evolution. Have you heard of the Zorse? Wouldn't you love to have one of those? They're so cool. A Zorse is a zebra horse cross. How about a Zonkey? I'll put pictures on the screen here for you. Yes, a Zonkey is just after, like its name, a zebra donkey cross. Have you heard of a Liger? Yeah, the largest of the cats is a Liger. 
A liger is a cross between a lion and a tiger. No, that is not photoshopped. I first looked at it and I'm like, ah, that can't be real. No, it's, it's actually real. It's massive. So cross between a lion and a tiger. And there is such a thing as well as a tigun. Tigun's also a cross between a lion and a tiger. Now here's one. Did you know there is such a thing as a buffalo? A buffalo? Or a bee, sorry, a beefalo. Did you know that? Strange looking picture here. Yeah, that's a beefalo. It's a cross between a cow and a buffalo. So guess what? Cows and buffaloes then are in the same kind, even though they're not the same species per se. So the cats are all the same kind. Dogs are all in the same kind. It's so all the various breeding that human, humans have done, and some of this stuff's just natural as well. All of that breeding that's gone on, the crossbreeding, is just the way God made them, to reproduce after their kind. Well, here's a, uh, a graph on the screen of how, of how the, the evolutionary perspective looks at the origin of species. See, uh, see all this hybrid stuff is, is for some evolutionists, a proof of evolution. So here's what they believe anyway. You'll see on the screen here. Hopefully you can see that. But um, they, they say that the chance processes per, uh, produced the first living cell around 4 billion years ago. And over millions of years, random mutations increased genetic diversity. And then that led to new species on the single tree of life. And over time, each species lost the ability to produce hybrids with other species. So that's the evolutionary perspective on the origin of species. Let me give you the creation view of life here, according to this. So what, what did God do? God, what did he say in verses 24 and 25? God made everything to reproduce after its own kind. So God created every kind of creature about 6,000 years ago. From the beginning, each of those kinds had a genetic diversity within it. It had the potential necessary to produce new species very quickly. So from, you know, for example, from a wolf, you get all the various dogs branching out from that. And from a cat, you get all the various cats, small and big ones. And so the species belonged to independent families in this orchard here and often retained the ability to produce hybrids within that family. So that's why you have hybrids happening today, which many scientists thought couldn't happen. So when God sees his creation, did you notice what he, what he says about it here in verse 25? God's assessment of his creation was that it was good. It was good. This is very significant. You look at Genesis 1.25. He says, he looks, he sees what he's made here, and he says, it was good. Now, this rules out deformities. It rules out mutations prior to Adam's fall into sin. There is no sin yet. Adam hasn't sinned yet. There is no death. So that it, it eliminates natural selection. It eliminates the survival of the fittest. There were no unfit animals at this point at day six. God said they were all good, just as God had designed them. There's no imperfections. There was no inferiority. They were all good. Scripture teaches, by the way, there was 
no such thing as death prior to Adam's fall. You want to know where death comes from? You want to talk to committees who are thinking about moral issues in our society? They need to understand where all suffering and death came from. Came from the sin that took place in the Garden of Eden. And so death is the result of sin. It's not, as you see in that picture there, you don't have a huge pile of fossils and bones and lots of suffering and death and disease millions of years before God makes the animals a man. That God says in Romans 5, verse 12, He says, Sin came into the world through one man. Here's what the Bible says. And then where did death come from? Death comes from sin. So the curse of sin didn't just affect Adam and Eve, it affected all of creation, including the animals. Because look what Romans 8, verse 20 says. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's what Romans 8 says. So, it should be clear from that those verses, Adam's sin affected all of creation. And so it even brought death into the animal kingdom. There was no death, no suffering, no disease before Genesis 3. So that means prior to Adam's fall, none of the animals were carnivores either, by the way. There was no lions running around killing deer and eating them. Uh, they didn't hunt and kill other animals for food. They would have ate plants. So Scripture teaches that when King Jesus returns, praise God, He's going to return, and when He comes back, He's going to restore things back to the original order. If you don't believe me, read Isaiah chapter 11, because it says that the whole animal kingdom is going to return back to a peaceful state during the millennium when Jesus is here and ruling and reigning, we're going to see lions and lambs peacefully sleeping, lying down next to each other. No, the lion's not going to eat the lamb. They're going to be peacefully coexisting with each other. There will no longer be slaughtering by those animals killing other animals. It won't happen. So this first act of creation on day six completes the earthly habitat that God was making for Adam, the first man. So earth here was a paradise. Everything was good. And God was now ready for the climax of his creation, which we'll look at next time in the, in the next few verses in Genesis 1. The climax of his creation is a, a creature that is made in the image of God. So if you want to hear that message, please come back next week to hear the rest of the story. Let's pray.